0: Luke's Gospel this morning on this Palm Sunday, on this our last uh, Sunday of Lent, on this the last Sunday, uh, second to last Sunday actually of our, our series, A Costly Journey, in which we consider one of the things that following Jesus costs us. Uh, and, and next Sunday we're, we're going to consider the fact that I'm just going to go and tell you that uh, the resurrection costs us our despair, costs us our hopelessness, and so we're really excited to come and Um, And and offer that and celebrate that. But if you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand with me. We'll be in Luke uh, chapter 18, continuing in that that narrative, uh, that that journey that Luke captures from the moment that Jesus in Luke 9 sets his eyes toward Jerusalem. He has been on that journey um, from that point forward uh, to this Sunday when, all things being equal, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Luke 18, uh, beginning with verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever stopped uh, to consider, or have you ever considered the links that you have gone to, would go to, maybe are going to in your life, not to be found out? And, and I don't mean like not getting caught, because that's that's different. That's a different message for a different day. Um, because some of you, especially if you're an older sibling, you, you know the links that you've gone to to not get caught right, that usually involves blaming someone else, blaming a young, younger sibling for something that you did. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, it, it exposed, like, like found out in the sense of, I can't really do this thing that I've led you to believe that I can do, or I'm inadequate in, in this area of my life, or, uh, you know, maybe that thing that I put on my resume in hopes of of getting uh, this job or being considered for this job. I really have no idea how to do that. Like maybe the links that you went to to be uh, found out uh, was that maybe on a resume you put that you are proficient in Excel, Um, that like Da Vinci code of a program where everything that you do just unlocks like 200 other things that it can do. And no one really, really knows all the ins and outs of it because I think it's like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. Like every decision that you make, it unlocks countless other decisions. When, when really, you, you, what, the only thing that you have ever used Excel for is like, I, who's coming to my party and what are they bringing to it? Or who are the people that have RSVP'd yes to my wedding reception. And, and, and yet you sit down and you're asked this question, walk me through your resume. And you think, can't you read? Like, it's just right there in front of you. Like, why did I type up a resume and send it to you? And you're asking me to walk you through it because you know the question is coming. Tell me about your proficiency in Excel. And, and you begin thinking, how am I going to answer this question or divert attention or fake death so that I'm not found out? Or, or maybe you, you have, um, you know, in class, like I, I wouldn't recommend um, faking your way through a foreign language class because eventually you will be exposed. If you are a good enough writer, you can, you can kind of fake your way through a literature class or an English class. If you just have the gift of gab and, and can just lay, you know, just write a paper in such a way that that professor is convinced that uh, not only you... You know, did you, did you read the material, but you should actually be used as the example of how to, um, how to expound upon this material. In a foreign language class, that's maybe a little bit different. For instance, um, in, in my uh, short stint with, the, uh, with Spanish when I was in high school, I didn't always do the work. I didn't always study. I didn't always pay attention in class. Um, so much so that the, uh, the my Spanish teacher stopped calling me by my given like uh, my, my given Spanish name and just started calling me Mr. Collins. Like everyone else in there had a Spanish name except for me. I was Mr. Collins. And and she she would say things to me because I maybe was having discussion with classmates. She would say la boca, Mr. Collins." And I, I would think she was giving me instruction on something to do, like she was, this is the test, and so I would get up and go close the door to the classroom. <laughs> she was telling me to shut my mouth, not go close the door. Uh, or, or one time, there's a, there's a diagram, you know, of a house, and, and she, she's, you know, pointing, like, if you are in, in this room of the house, where are you? And, and she points to um, a bathroom, and she says, Mr. Collins, if you're here, where are you? And, and I said, uh, Yo soy en el gato. I am in the cat. <laughs> not in the bathroom, I am in the cat. And she didn't like that answer. And she just proceeded to ask me questions. And I eventually said to her, No sabes. Which is not, I don't know, it's, You don't know. <laughs> I was found out, I was exposed. It was only by the grace of God that I passed that class. And I think she just pitied me and just thought this, this guy's a lost cause. But we have to get him out of here. <laughs> we, we often go to great lengths to not be found out. Whether that is heaping accolades, earned or unearned, earned or made up upon ourselves so that we appear um, more proficient, so that we appear better, so that we appear stronger, so that we appear more successful, so that we appear like we just have it all together in the eyes of people around us, whether that is a coworker, whether that is uh, an employer, or whether it is just for the world around us, for anyone that may be looking in on your life. If we are adept at anything, we are adept at presenting to the world this picture of one who has it all together. And we come up with incredibly creative ways to do that. The question that we have to wrestle with this morning, the question that our text invites us to wrestle with this morning is, how does that affect our relationship with God? Because... Out of the gate, we, we have to deal with what uh, the author of Hebrews uh, tells us in Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews 4:13: 4, "Nothing in all creation is hidden." From God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Nothing is hidden from the sight of God. And yet, I wonder how often we approach. God, how often we approach the Lord in prayer. How often we approach our quiet times, if that's something that is a part of your um, your spiritual habits or your spiritual practice. How often we um, approach the Lord in worship. Hoping that if we say the right things in prayer, if, if we have the right kind of attitude before God's Word, if we're doing our quiet time the way that, that we should, uh, whatever that looks like, if, if, we, if we feel like I'm checking that box faithfully, if we are attending church regularly, if we are singing, if we, I mean, any of these things that we, we tend to pile up, we, we have uh, somehow allowed ourselves, many of us, to become convinced. That God will not, he will only see the external. God will only see the things that we are doing that are faithful. And that are meant to be a reflection of this life that we are called to walk and live in Jesus. That as long as we can hold these things up, then we can hide from God those deficiencies that we have or the areas in our lives where we are not willing to give it all or the the ways that we continue to choose our own way, our own um, purpose, our own path in life. Or, or the things that we choose that, that really are harmful to us and maybe even harmful to people around us. And maybe we do that to numb some sort of pain or we seek to hide the ways that we've been wounded or broken um, by others. And, and yet what we, what we find here at the hand of the author of Hebrews, and, and it's a truth that we see throughout Scripture, there's nothing that we can hide from God. And so why is it that we tend to approach God that way? Why why do we have this this tendency? And and maybe you don't even realize that you're doing it. And for us, this is an invitation to examine our our posture uh, before the Lord. As you posture before the Lord, one who knows that all things are laid bare before the sight of God, that everything is clear in God's sight. That as as David says in Psalm 139, there's nowhere that we can go where we can flee from God's spirit. If we seek to hide in the dark, even the dark is as light to God. Is is our posture before the Lord as one who knows that? Or is our posture before the Lord as as one who who is seeking to, um, almost as if we're giving a resume to God. Here are all the things that I've done. Here are the things that I've accomplished. Here are all the ways that I've been faithful. And so we see this in this parable that, that Jesus offers here. And, and preceding this, if you were to go back to the beginning of Luke 18, this is a, both of these are, are parables or stories, examples of, of prayer and, and ways that, um, that we, we ought to pray. And, and the, the preceding uh, verses are the, it's the story of the persistent widow. And, and the, the, the story that Jesus uses to highlight this what does it look like to be persistent in prayer? What does it look like to continue to take our prayers to the throne of God, to the feet of God, to continue um, to lift up to God those things that are concerns for ours? And then Jesus continues in verse 9 to some who were confident of their own righteousness. How would Jesus know? that there were some in his midst who were confident of their own righteousness if all things weren't laid bare before him. Remember, Jesus being fully man and fully God, it's one of the great mysteries of our faith. But laid bare before the eyes of Jesus, he knows the heart of man. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And, and I think that that's That's the key. I do believe that there's a degree to which we can be confident in the righteousness that we have because of Christ. If you look at um, Paul's second letter to the church in, in Corinth, in, um, in chapter 5, we read that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. That being, uh, being covered by what um, Christ accomplished for us on the cross, that we are able to stand before the Father righteous. Not because we've done anything to earn it, not because we've done anything to, to make that possible. In fact, um, if you were to go back, and the, the prophets attest to this, if you were to go back to Isaiah 64, um, verse 6, we read, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our, all, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So everything that we do that we think earns us a seat at the table or earns our favor before God, um, Scripture is clear, Isaiah says this very clearly, all of that is filthy rags. Everything that you do that you think is credited to you as your righteousness is a filthy rag before the Lord. And then we read, as I said in 2 Corinthians 5, that the righteousness that we have is because of Christ, because it has been imparted to us, because he has stood in our place. He has taken the penalty for our brokenness and for our rebellion, for our sinfulness. Some who are confident in their own righteousness, we can be confident in the righteousness that is ours by Christ, but not confident in what we offer or the things that we think that we do to make us right before God. To some who are confident of their own righteousness, and then and then this is one of the ways that we measure this, and looked down on everyone else. So if if you're in a place where you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't know, like I don't, I don't know that I've really thought that way about how I view myself before God. But I think we have to. It, it's one of the. Areas where it's so important for us to consider and to pay attention to the way that culture might inform for us our understanding of how we ought to, to be or what our posture ought to be before the Lord. The world is constantly throwing at us this like need to measure up, this need to be at least as good as, if not better than someone else. And if that's what's constantly being offered to us, then it is easy, if we're not careful, for that to begin to inform our understanding of how we ought to operate before the Lord. But one of the measures for us, one of the ways that we determine, it, like, is this something that I need to allow God to deal with in my heart, is what is our, the way that we, we, we measure or we evaluate the people around us? Because in this case, one of the dead giveaways for self-righteousness was to look down on those who, who, in this story, the Pharisee, considered to be less than. What is your view of the people around you? What is your view or your opinion of people that have made life choices that are different than yours? or who are choosing to chase and pursue things that are different than what you are trying to chase and pursue in your life? How do you view them? Do you consider other people in this world, other people in your own life that you consider to be less than you? Less worthy, less responsible. Maybe there are people that are less responsible than you. But what is happening in your heart when you evaluate people around you that have made different choices than you, that have walked or are walking a different path than what you're walking? Is it to stand in the posture like this Pharisee and to say, thank goodness I am not like that person? Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee which was a religious leader, an expert in the law, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, <clears throat> which is important to note is different than in verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. The Pharisee knew that as a Pharisee, he was set apart from the average worshiper. And so he stood apart by himself, but in such a way and with such a posture as to ensure that the people who were in his presence would look at him and say, look at that Pharisee who is standing apart, who stands apart. Look at how honored he must be. Look at how venerable he is. Look at all that he has achieved and accomplished because you don't just stumble into being a Pharisee. Look at how holy he must be. Look at, How righteous he must be. His posture was one of standing apart or standing by himself in such a way that he ensured that people would look at him and say, wow, he is standing alone. He's in a field all his own. He is set apart from me. This was intentional, this posture that the Pharisee had in the company of those who had also gone up to the temple, and he... Pray this prayer, God. I thank you that I am not like other people, measuring, measuring himself, measuring his life against the lives of others—robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Are you heaping up for yourself accolades or a resume that makes it incredibly difficult for you to evaluate yourself before the Lord? Evaluate yourself before the word. Evaluate yourself before Christ as the example. And and friends, so many of us, the reason that we do that, as I said in the opening, is because we are afraid of being found out. We are afraid of some inadequacy that we have or some weakness or some woundedness that we have in our life, something that we are not proud of, something that we are ashamed of. And so we surround ourselves with these accolades, made up or not, and highlight those as the most important thing about who we are. Like Paul in in Philippians 3, where he highlights his resume as a Jewish man, and Paul checks all the boxes. He's the guy, like he, he is him. He is the one that you want on your team, except for the fact that after highlighting all of those things, Paul says and acknowledges and realizes that until he met Christ, all of those things made him, he would have been the Pharisee standing apart from everyone else, standing in such a way that everyone could see that he stands apart. But when he encountered Christ, he realizes something. He says all of that is rubbish. All of that is garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because held up next to who Jesus is, held, held up next to the perfection with which Jesus walked on this earth, the perfection with which he showed and revealed the heart of the Father, his perfect understanding of Scripture, his perfect understanding of the law and the way that he lived it, that out, his per- perfect faithfulness to that which he was called to do, held up next to that, Paul realized, everything that I thought I had going for me, it's nothing. The only thing that I have going for me now is the fact that Jesus met me on the road and didn't strike me dead where he found me. He met me on the road and invited me into life with himself. He met me on the road and and granted me his righteousness because mine was not enough. It never, ever was going to get the job done. He met me on the road and offered me grace that transformed me and made me something new and changed the way that I look at the world around me and changed the way that I look at all that I had accomplished and all that I had achieved. The fact that that Paul met Jesus in such a powerful way doesn't change the fact that he was a Pharisee. doesn't change the fact that he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. It doesn't change the fact that he did everything right according to the customs of the Hebrew people. All of that was still true about Paul. It changed the value of those things because Paul says those things no longer get to define who I am because none of them compare to the greatness of Jesus and what he offers me in himself. That is now the way that I choose to be defined by Christ, not by myself and my own accomplishments. I saw a video recently. It was um, two men talking and one of them uh, says, a resume uh, tells you where I've been, but, but the best part about me is, is who I am as God's child. The best part about me is where he's leading me and what he's drawing me into. And, and we spend an awful lot of time focused on the resume that tells people where I've been, where we've been and what we've accomplished. And if we're not careful, we, we, we tend to try to offer that to God as if he's gonna look at your resume and be like, finally, I've been waiting for somebody with your ability and your skill and your knowledge to come along. God, I'm just, I'm getting tired of dealing with all these knuckleheads. No, Jesus, God, God looks at that and, and says, okay, yeah, what else you got? That doesn't really impress me. What I'm concerned with is, is your allegiance, the allegiance of your heart, Because the the more things that you you pile up as exterior um, achievements and accomplishments, the more things that you use to try to hide your your inadequacies and and your insufficiencies from from the world around you, the the more hard your heart becomes to what I want to do in your life. And the more difficult it becomes for you to receive that. So this is kind of where the Pharisee is. And gosh, wouldn't it be, I mean, this is one of those moments where, where I wish like, you know, when, when we stand in the presence of Jesus, and it seems like based on what scripture says that the only thing we'll be able to focus on at that point is Jesus, but like if we had a moment and could talk to somebody that, you know, walked what we see in the gospels. This is a guy I would like to meet. And to say, hey, what, what was it that you were worried about? Like, what were you trying to hide? What was it in your life or in your heart that you were so concerned with people finding out that this is how you prayed? Diverting attention from yourself by, by elevating yourself above the people around you. What was it about that tax collector that made you say, I'm glad I'm better than that guy? We don't know, but we have to assume that there was something in this Pharisee's life because it's true for all of us who have this sort of posture. There was something in his life that he was trying to compensate for. Elsewhere, Jesus says of the Pharisees that they're like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, there's only death and decay. What was it that this man was unwilling to allow God to really get a hold of? We don't know. But held up against the, the picture of this Pharisee that, that really, I mean, I wonder if, if he were in our midst and he probably wouldn't have the robes and the tassels and, but like, what would a Pharisee of our day look like? Like, someone who was, who knew God's Word inside and out, who, who tithed, like, the, the things he's saying in his prayer, the, the, the like, the the way that he lives out his faith, none of those are inherently wrong. But the fact that he uses those as the measure of comparing himself to others, and, and because of the fact that, that he comes out looking better than those around him, that he then uh, is in a place where he's able to stand in righteousness before God, like that's the problem. The fact that he ties, the fact that he prays, the fact that he's doing these things, none of that is inherently wrong. What, what would a Pharisee in our midst look like? And would we be tempted to look at them and say, gosh, that, that person is the standard. Like, I wish I had that kind of faith. I wish I tithed more generously. I wish I read, my, the, read the Word and spent time in Scripture more diligently. I, like, I wish I had that. But, but I wonder what we're not seeing. What's being hidden by this shiny and admirable exterior? Because held up against that, this tax collector who the Pharisee pointed to. This tax collector stood at a distance. And, and this, is, this is different than the manner in which the Pharisee is standing by himself. Stood at a distance means he, he didn't even want to be near other people who were there worshiping and praying. He didn't even want to be seen by them. He he wasn't there to deal with other people. He was there to deal with one, only one. His was an audience of one, if you will. He was concerned about one thing, and that was his heart before God. And it's so significant that Jesus elevates this tax collector as being the example in this situation. A tax collector would have been A Jewish man who either bought the rights to operate as a tax collector or said yes to the invitation to operate as a tax collector. And a tax collector in that time would have been one who was seen as a traitor to the people of God because the very people he was taxing were his own people, his brothers and sisters. And taxing in such a way under the eyes of Rome in which Rome was okay with saying, hey, you know what? It's okay take a little bit for yourself off the top. If you need to raise the taxes a little so that you can skim off the top, that's great, fine. As long as we get ours, you go ahead and do what you need to do. This man was a traitor. This man betrayed the people of God by executing and continuing to perpetuate the rule and the reign of Rome for them. He had no right Really, to be in the temple. And yet he's in the temple, standing at a distance because he doesn't want to be near other people because he's only concerned with one, and that is God. And he stands there, not even able to look up to heaven, a man ashamed, beating his chest. God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy. There's nothing that gives me the right to stand before you. There's nothing that gives me the right to to kneel before you. There's nothing that gives me the right even to raise my eyes. The only hope I have, God, is that you would have mercy on me, a sinner. He went away justified. Because he was honest with his condition before the Lord. He knew that when everything else is stripped away, he could not stand before God. He was willing to take an honest evaluation of himself. And we don't know what led him to this point. We don't know if he had had an encounter with one of the disciples, if he had heard Jesus teaching. But in this parable, in this story, this illustration that Jesus gives, there's something in this man's life that brought him to a breaking point. And he went to the one place, the only place where he thought he had hope, and that was to throw himself on the mercy, the merciful heart of God, to humble himself, laying aside any pride he ever had, beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, what is it that keeps us from humbling ourselves before God? Is it we are afraid of the way that God might receive us what God might do when we approach when we come before him, head bowed beating our chest are we afraid that God's going to say, told you I told you maybe, you know, through other Christians, told you that if you made this choice it was going to go poorly told you things were going to end up this way if you continued to walk that path and look, here you are because if we're honest, we, we, we've heard that. Many of us, from people in our lives, told you now you are reaping the consequences of what you chose. And so we, that we don't need another person telling us what we already know. That we have fallen short, that we have failed, that we have caused hurt and have been hurt. If you were to continue on in Hebrews chapter four, after that really hard truth, That nothing in all creation is hidden bare from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Which can feel like, well, perfect. Now what are people going to think? And Now what is God going to think of me? Verse 14, therefore, therefore, because that is true, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. He's perfect, set apart. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. A confidence not based on anything that we have done to warrant a place at the foot of the throne of grace, but confidence in what Jesus accomplished to make that possible for us because he allowed himself to be humbled as as the author, uh, as Paul recalls in Philippians 2. That he who had no sin became, ch- chose to be mistreated, chose to put on flesh, chose to lay his life down, chose to humble himself. So it's in confidence that we're able to approach the throne of grace. To come to hear those words that I alluded to earlier from Matthew 11. 28, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, we have some copies of it back there, you're welcome to take. He says you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I will give you rest. His rest is the gift, is gift, not transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness, labor, or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, heavy laden, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own. The very burden that you carry is the thing that qualifies you to come. It's not about cleaning your life up before you come. It's about, as Brennan Manning says, dealing with the imposter, that exterior that we create for ourselves that we feel like we have to present to the world and even to God if we're honest. To deal with the imposter, not to ignore it, but to deal with it, to name it to name the imposter, because it's only when we bring that to light that we find ourselves like this tax collector where we are able to go before the Lord and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here are the ways I've fallen short, and here is where I need your mercy. i want to close with this and then transition into the very tangible reminder for us of the Lord's Supper, that he allowed himself to be stripped That he allowed himself to be beaten, that he allowed himself to be broken on our behalf, taking on our penalty. This is at the end of Manning's book, Abba's Child, in which he deals with this identity as children of God and the imposter that stands opposed to that. And he he wrote a letter at the end of this, this retreat in the Colorado mountains, wrote a letter to the imposter in his life. And I wonder maybe if some of us need to do that. He says, the bottom line, my pampered playmate, is that you are both needy and selfish. You need care, love, and a safe dwelling place. On this last day in the Rockies, my gift is to take you where unknowingly you have longed to be, into the presence of Jesus. Your days of running riot are history. From now on, you slow down, slow very down. In his presence, I notice that you have already begun to shrink. Naturally, you are not going to roll over suddenly and die. I know you will get disgruntled at times and start to act out, but the longer you spend time in the presence of Jesus, the more accustomed you grow to his face. The less adulation you will need because you, have you will have discovered for yourself that he is enough. And in the presence, you will delight in the discovery of what it means to live by grace and not by performance. Friends, to walk as a follower of Jesus costs us our pride. It costs us that by which we compare ourselves to the world around us, by which we compare ourselves to others, hoping By some chance that we come out looking better and hoping that that means that God will accept us more freely and yet, and yet, there's nothing about our pride, there's nothing about our earthly accomplishments or achievements that makes us worthy to be received by God. It is only by the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus that we come.